Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 471st episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, THR's executive editor of awards coverage. And my guest today is a tremendously gifted young actress who seems to keep popping up and doing extraordinary work in stage and screen projects that everyone winds up talking about. Stephanie Hsu. Consider the 32-year-old's output over just the last five years. On Broadway, she starred in two musicals, SpongeBob SquarePants, which was tied with Mean Girls as the most Tony-nominated show of 2018, and then in the cult favorite, Be More Chill. On TV, she played May, Joel Maisel's post-Midge love interest, on the third and fourth seasons of Amazon Prime's Emmy-winning comedy series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And she'll presumably be back for that show's fifth and last season, though she can't say. Most recently, in 2022, she made her feature film debut opposite Michelle Yeoh and Kihei Kwan, playing Joy, the queer American daughter of Chinese immigrants who desperately wants her mother to accept her for who she is, and who, in some alternate universes, is a nihilistic chaos agent named Jobu Tapaki. It'll make more sense once you see the movie. In Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert's Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is now the highest grossing film in the history of A24, and is a major Oscar contender, not least for her in the category of Best Supporting Actress. Indeed, Shu has already been nominated for the Equivalent Critics' Choice Award, as well as the Best Breakthrough Performance Spirit Award, and an Oscar nomination seems likely to follow. Over the course of an emotional conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Shu and I discussed what it was like growing up in real life as the queer American daughter of an immigrant who didn't exactly encourage her acting ambitions, how her own imagination of what her career could look like had definite limits, and how those limits, which may have actually been defense mechanisms, have been shattered time and again. The crazy series of events that led to her and the Daniels meeting and eventually working together on Everything Everywhere, and what it's been like having her career and Everything Everywhere be so warmly embraced at a time when anti-Asian hate is simultaneously surging across America, plus much more. In case you couldn't already tell, I'm a big fan of shoes and a big believer in her future, and I came away from our conversation just as impressed with her as a person as I am with her as an actress. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So 
On this one, we always begin truly at the beginning. Can you tell us where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? Oh, um, I was born in Torrance, California, raised in the South Bay. Um, and my uh, parents probably don't want me to announce what they did. So I'm <laughs> they were in the mafia. Just yeah, kidding. Right, right, right. <laughs> Asians are very private. So I'll respect their privacy. Fair enough. And <laughs> they made me sign an NDA at birth. <laughs> that's, that's 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 fair enough. Um, now, from what I read, your mom was is from Taiwan, came to the U.S. at what or mainland, whatever, at, at what uh point in her life, just because looking at ob obvious parallels, perhaps, between uh, your movie and yeah, your life. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, there are so many parallels. My mom, she was um, sent over. Basically, my great-grandmother, it's actually kind of cool. My great-grandmother had 13 kids in Asia, in Taiwan, and my grandmother was the oldest. And then one uncle— one of my uncles got a green card and then just basically started, like, plucking everyone <laughs> over. Um, and my mom was sent over when she was in high school or right about to start high school. She was sent to Chicago, mm -hmm. um, outside of Chicago, to live with my aunt for a better education. Mm -hmm. And then she ended up um, getting into UCLA, paid her way through UCLA, and kind of settled in Southern California with a lot oh. of other relatives. Wow, wow. But, yeah, she has a— a true, a pretty true immigrant experience yeah. of coming to America. So I'm technically first or second generation, depending on who you ask. Right. Now, how early on did you first display even just a, an interest in people who act or acting? Um, because I believe it, again, maybe sort of there are some parallels between, you know, what a parent can see for the child and what the child can see for themselves based on things you've said about that moment. Yeah, totally. I was a pretty expressive young kid. My mom tells this story of <laughs> my mom tells the story of how she got pulled over for speeding. And I was a kid and it was in the summertime and the cops like giving my mom a ticket. And then I said to him, like peeked out over the window and I said, Merry Christmas, because <laughs> I thought that was a thing that would make people happy. Right. Um, <laughs> did she get out of the ticket? No, no? she did. <laughs> um, my mom used to speed a lot. But anyway, um, yeah, so I think I was always very expressive. And then at a very young age, maybe second grade, mm -hmm. I remember um, having to do a I was chosen to do a fake lemonade ad in front of the student body, mm -hmm. which basically just meant we were in the multi-purpose room. Mm -hmm. I stood in front of the class. Someone held a piece of cardboard that said lemonade for 50 cents, buy it now. <laughs> and I read it aloud. And I remember thinking in that moment, this very profound moment of thinking, wow, that was really fun. And I think I might be kind of good at this reading <laughs> publicly, <laughs> I guess. Um, and then I thought immediately after I said, I should probably think of something more practical to do with my life. And so I just squashed it. And I uh, kept doing school plays or, you know, school plays that everyone had to do because <laughs> it was a public yeah. school. Yeah. Um, I, I was always very creative, but I just I completely shut out the possibility of being in this industry because it just felt so far away. But was that you making that conclusion before or after you verbalized that to your mom? That was even before. Even before. And then when I verbalized it to my mom later on and maybe 
late elementary school or middle school, that's when she sort of pointed to the TV and said, how can you how can you be an actor? There's nobody who looks like you. And so it is kind of interesting to unpack that moment when I was a kid, because obviously what I had already been doing was internalizing everything that I saw on the screens. I just knew, even though I didn't have the language, I was like, oh, I can't be there or there is no me there. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, the success of the movie, the biggest thing that it has given me is truly permission to, I feel like I I have dreams for the first time in my life, which is really wild and, you know, a little sad, but I just, I, I've, none of this has ever felt real or actual or something that I'm, that I'm actually doing. It feel, it's always felt like something I stumbled into, even though that's true and untrue. Um, but yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's to, to feel myself healing that small child version of myself. And it must be kind of surreal to think, what if you had had a movie to look at with people like you in this movie when you were a kid? Would that have totally shifted the outlook? A hundred percent. I mean, I feel like I have been paving a way for myself that a younger version of myself could have used, you know, from be more chill or on Broadway or even on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. When that role came across my proverbial desk, Mm -hmm. my, um, you know, green room (laughs) at the Lyceum Theater. (laughs) And um, I remember thinking there's no way before I even read it, I was like, there's no way there's a Chinese person who speaks regular English (laughs) in the late 1950s on a television, on a successful television show. And to my surprise, there was. There was. And I'm, I'm going to stop us only because I don't want to overlook the steps even leading yes. up to that. So it seems like, as with most people, it helps to have someone, you know, champions along the way. And I guess, was there somebody in high school who even, you know, sort of in terms of even selecting things that productions and things was tailoring it? sounds like to you because they saw something. I mean, my whole life has just been what I like to say, people opening doors for me that I didn't know existed. Whether it was my friend Ryan Amador in the eighth grade saying, you should really do drama in high school. And I was like, I want to play basketball instead. Okay. (laughs) Um, You know, he got me into drama. The upperclassmen put me into their senior production of airplane on stage, (laughs) a stage production of airplane. That was my first play. Um, and then, you know, later on, um, my friend, Brendan Naylor, who's now, um, a producing, uh, on the producing team for Darren Aronofsky, ironically, or strangely, he was an upperclassman. And I remember he pulled me aside. He was doing a very avant-garde not avant-garde. It was just kind of wild that he was doing a self-directed production of Assassins in high school. Mm -hmm. And he pulled me aside one day and he said, you know, you should really think about going to college for this. And I didn't even know that that was possible. So, yeah, I mean, up until this point, it really has just been always other people seeing something that maybe I couldn't even see in myself. Well, along those lines, I I know that you end up going to NYU Tisch, which, so that means going across the country mm-hmm. away from, I don't know how much time you'd spent in New York up to that point, but, um, I guess it seems like there was another person like that who entered the picture there 
who unfortunately is no longer with us. But mm-hmm. what was uh, how did you come to know Liz Suedos and what yeah. what uh, difference did she make in your mm-hmm. life? Yeah, Liz, I met her my freshman year of college. Um, I there was a welcome week show called the reality show. And it's a show that she had started because basically there were a lot of suicides that were happening at NYU in the early 2000s, 90s. So they wanted to hire someone to create a show that would speak to the student body to help the student body that was entertaining and subversive, but also gave people tools of where to go in times of need. And Liz Suedos, because she had done the show Runaways and Mm -hmm. created a show with actual runaway teenagers, um, they hired Liz. And so I saw the show my freshman year of college first week of school and they they did a song called like the condom song and you know people were just it was crazy yeah. I mean it was just wild to see that in a you know your first week of college right. people are doing subversive experimental right. musical theater and I was like I have to be in that show and so I met her pretty soon after that and I ended up joining that show and she really took me under her wing as she does with people that she really believes in um she really I choreographed for her. I later assistant directed for her. We went to Shanghai and Abu Dhabi, all to work with international students to create this show together or create their own version of this show. Um, And she really kept me in check all the time. And she, you know, really taught me what art can do because I, I saw it. I saw how it changed my life. But so many students who were really struggling or suffering, this show became a huge impactful thing in their lives. And I, you know, was really brought into the experimental downtown community, which is very international, puppet, puppet, tears from Germany, you know, it was very, um, my own mini version of what I imagined New York in the seventies was like, (laughs) um, and it was awesome. I I feel really proud that that is such a bedrock of how I was brought up in that pocket of this big umbrella of performing. Well, it's also, it seems like they're maybe starting at NYU. They're were these two sides of you that emerged. They're not mutually exclusive, but there's the musical side, which some people who know you from Everything Everywhere or even Maisel may have no idea exists. And then there's the people who know you from Broadway who may not even know that you've done these other things. Yeah, totally. So the the one side would would be what we've just talked about, which I saw her, uh, Liz had described it at like her kind of, opening that she felt she filled was um, like experimental musical Mm. theater, which people know about other forms, but I guess that she felt was a little neglected. But then there's also the comedy side. So can you talk about what was the comedy scene like at NYU? Because it seems like you were both following in uh, some interesting footsteps there and alongside people who have risen with you in the business. Totally. Well, yeah, you know, that was another door that opened. So um, Rachel Bloom went to a neighboring high school. She was very good friends with the upperclassman, Brendan, that I just mentioned. They came to see me in a production, a high school production of Thoroughly Modern Millie, where I played Mrs. Mears, which if you don't know the musical... Or if you do know the musical, it's pretty messed up that I play Mrs. Mears um, because on Broadway, she was a white person in yellow geisha face 
And then I was an Asian person in also yellow geisha face at high school. But, you know, I was really amazing. It was, it was a different Honestly, time. Honestly, yeah, it was a different time, you know. Um, I was great. Yeah. And um, but Rachel came to that show and she was like, hey, you should really think about doing. I don't know if she had already gone to college or. I don't remember, but she knew about Hammercats, the sketch group I was in, and she said, you you should really think about joining that group when you get there. Um, so she kind of— you, you, When you say you were in, you mean that, that you would be in? Yeah, that I would be in. Yeah, so she yeah. basically, when I got to NYU, she encouraged me to audition for the comedy group I got in. And Is this the one that was started by Donald Glover? Yes. And it's— Sketch, not improv? It's sketch. Okay. So me and Bo Bowen Yang was in yep. the improv group. We were the, you know, two Asians. And the, there was one more. Okay. <laughs> right, right. There's three of <laughs> us. Um, and, uh, yeah, and Matt Rogers, if you know Matt, he was in the sketch group. And I loved comedy. It was really fun. But I never felt that it fully fulfilled what I wanted to be doing, which was a much more story-driven form of creating. I wanted there to be a beginning, middle, end. I wanted there to be different forms of movement or expression or camera angles. I just, this, the environment of comedy at that time and still now just felt um, I wasn't really exactly cut out for. It was only one slice of me, but it was very fun. And I really do miss it. Sometimes I my dream is to host SNL. I heard while that. Bowen while Bo is, is yes, there, that would my be goal. pretty cool. That's my that's my goal. So you know, we'll see. Manifest that. Absolutely. I'm, I hope, <laughs> hope people are listening. Lawrence on the podcast. Maybe somebody there's okay, still bro. listening. Come on now. <laughs> uh, but so you graduate in what year? Twenty. Uh, twelve. I was class of twenty twelve. Twelve. Okay. Finished in twenty eleven. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the crazy thing is that from you know, being inclined for to more experimental stuff, right? And I think for a little while working out in the real world in downtown experimental stuff, how do you wind up on Broadway in SpongeBob SquarePants <laughs> musical? Which, by the way, if anyone wants to make the assumption that I made before I see it, let me disabuse you of any notions. <laughs> this was the most nominated Broadway show of 2018. You were in it. November 2017 to June 2018. Um, really interesting and well done. And you were involved for for years. I was but, there from the very beginning. Yeah, so talk about just connect those dots. I know, I know, I know. Aaron, the computer. Been, I, I played a computer. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's it's been really crazy because sometimes when I think about this year I've been, or not this year anymore, but last year mm -hmm. into this year, I'm getting all these like breakthrough accolades. Right. And it is this really ironic feeling because, <laughs> I mean, it's both, it's beautiful. And also sometimes I'm like, I've really been going at this right. for a long time. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm no spring chicken, you know. Um, but I do believe that every Every moment, every project has led me to this point and this particular culmination of everything everywhere. Um, but similarly with SpongeBob, you know, I never saw myself on Broadway. I didn't like musical theater necessarily. Liz was experimental musical theater. I sung, but I was I brought up by like jazz musicians. And um, 
Tina Landau, the director, she's also a very experimental director. So I had gone to Williamstown Theater Festival right when I got out of college. There were no, there was no showcase at NYU. So we didn't have like an agent showcase. Mm -hmm. I didn't want an agent. Mm -hmm. Went to Williamstown. Um, the woman who was uh, a head of um, the non-equity program, I was a part of the fellowship program, which means that 10 actors come together to devise a new play and a new musical. And I was a part of that program. Then we have a showcase. I was like, Laura, I don't, I don't even want the woman who's directing it. Yeah. I was like, Laura, I don't want an agent. Like, I don't, I don't want to do that. And she said, please do this. I think it's going to be really good for you. So I. Just for a second though, why didn't you want an agent? You felt that would be almost like selling out? I think it was a version of selling out. And I honestly think that at that time, I mean, I ha was commercially represented mm -hmm. and the, the bounds that we have made as an industry we have so much to go, and yet so much of that has happened in a pretty concentrated time, I would say maybe in the last five or so years. And when I was getting out of college, people were just still straight up so uh, inappropriate and racist in the room to me. Like the roles that I was getting, I remember like get, seeing a Law & Order like a, a sides or something? A law and order sides yeah. for an Asian person. Yeah. And it was taking place in a Chinese massage parlor. And everyone was speaking broken English, but then it was broken Japanese English. And I just remember being like, I don't want this life. And this is not what I'm capable of. And slash, I don't want to put that out into the world. And this is not correct. Like, fine, fine, whatever, Chinese massage parlor, our brains can go into all the stereotypes. But then for you to gr grammatic, incorrectly in non-grammatized, right. whatever, yeah, I don't yeah, know, yeah, blend, know the, yeah. coagulate the Asians into one inappropriate Asian, that's the stuff that I was seeing. And so I think I just didn't even see a need for an agent because I couldn't imagine that any work that I would ever want to do would be available to me through a mainstream tunnel. Did you ever doubt that there would even, so if you're not going into that tunnel, what would a career have looked like? I mean, I pretty much, I graduated early and right away, I almost didn't make it to my graduation because ceremony, because I was already in rehearsals for multiple downtown or like okay. off-Broadway pieces. And I was asked to carry the banner for Tisch School of the Arts at graduation, which is pretty much the only reason why I went. I was like, all right, if you want me to carry the flag, I guess I'll go. Yeah, you know? that's an honor. Yeah, <laughs> it's an honor. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, I, I was really fully prepared to just, I worked at a bar, I worked at a cafe, worked at Pinkberry, later worked in a wood shop. I was like, I'm going to live my fullest experimental artist self in New York City, making money how I can and just making art that I believe in. Would that have meant that your mom's skepticism would have been correct? Yeah. And I think that was my way of being like, yeah, I might not be on a screen, but I can still really make and I can make a life making. Um, I don't think of success or failure in that sort of visibility way. Mm -hmm. If you can live a good life as an artist, I mean, that's a, if you can really wake up every morning and feel proud of 
what you're putting into the world, what you're receiving and being in touch with that voice, that's such a gift. Some of the best artists I know, nobody knows, you know, and I'm still always trying to find those people who are undiscovered, who are actually getting to say what they want to say. Um, but I got into SpongeBob basically because after the showcase, I still hadn't decided which agency I wanted to go with or if I wanted to go that route. And I got a call from a casting director. They put me into a reading and the Viacom building for a two-day read-through, non-union, like maybe they might make a SpongeBob musical one day. It was just a table read of a potential script. This was Did in 2012. Did that even sound appealing to you? Like, how were you a SpongeBob fan? Well, yeah, I actually was. When <laughs> okay, I okay. when I was a kid, my one of my um, AIM screen names was SpongeBob Sweetie. <laughs> so I did love SpongeBob. Okay, I loved right. that sense of humor. Okay. Um, and it sounded really cool because every song was going to be written by a different musician. For those of you who don't know the musical, like T.I. and John Legend and the Flaming Lips had a song yep. in this musical. Um, so yeah, so I got tossed into that reading and it was so simpatico, me and Tina, that I was one of that I followed it for six years. They just kept Chicago bringing it. Chicago to Yeah, there were like, right? there were tens and 20, you know, never before seen uh, readings and even pr mini productions before Chicago even. Oh, wow. So we developed it for a really long time. And when something's getting developed like that, I mean, I, I cover theater and I'm not even totally sure the answer to this. Like, is that... Do they? Are you sort of on the payroll? Is that an, or do you have to figure it out while that's while that's happening? Like, you know, you stuck with it for a long time. Was that itself even a, a kind of a challenge to do because of you got to still pay rent? Yeah, right after Williamstown is when I started working for the wood shop, um, and what I basically would do is when and you never know in the beginning when you're on a new project you never know if they're going to call again so it was kind of just a surprise every time they kept calling me back and it would be for a month or it would be for a whole summer you would appreciate this because you cover theater yep. we gutted CSC the classic stage company right. and did a private like we did a full on production of SpongeBob oh just for test audiences <laughs> we we were on like full <laughs> payroll full contract oh, wow. costumes Everything. I mean, it was a scaled down <laughs> version, but for three performances for test audiences. Oh um, but yeah, and then I think around that time, too, I started working a lot more in um, commercials. And so I was sort of starting to piece together already um you know, the life of a freelancer. Right. So I was never just waiting for that gig. I was always kind of pounding the pavement, you know, doing readings, workshops, wood shop, you know, it was, it was a whole mixed bag. And so by the time after, what did you say, five years when it finally yeah. comes to Broadway, I mean, just the fact, like for somebody who's not in the business, if you say you're on Broadway, that you, sounds like you made it. I mean, was that in itself, was that very meaningful to you to, to, even though it wasn't an objective or anything, it wasn't something that you even thought was possible, you know, being on Broadway once, let alone pretty much then going straight right to, into right, being yeah. more chill. Yeah. Like, was that a sense that thing, how did, what did you make of that? And the fact that it was so embraced once it got seen. All of that was very surreal. Broadway was very surreal. And to be 
honest, Broadway also makes you work for it. Mm -hmm. So there was never a moment where it felt like I was just coasting because I think I already felt so, I felt severe imposter syndrome, I think. I felt like, I don't know how I got here. Literally, I wasn't even a part of the union when I first started working on SpongeBob. You know, I didn't have dance training. I got cut from the tap number. They said it was because, you know, I had a quick change, but it was because I don't tap, (laughs) you know. I was so scared. I I had never, I felt like such an imposter because I'd never had that traditional training before. And I knew I was very capable and I learned very fast, um, but it felt really scary. And I I don't think I, even with Be More Chill, when I got to play a female lead, which I never yeah, expected. I was going to say. I mean, let me read back to you just something. The, first, that, that one, did it start in New Jersey or something? It started in New Jersey, I think, 2012, 2014. That was also kind of right after Williamstown. And you were in it early on. Yeah, I was there. Okay, so the this beginning. is all kind of overlapping then because SpongeBob's on Broadway, for, or you're on, in SpongeBob on Broadway end of 2017 into mid-2018, and by early 2019 is Be More Chill on Broadway. So this was all truly basically overlapping. Yes, totally. And when the first production of Be More Chill happened, it was in New Jersey. I was going through a breakup. I was like, you keep the apartment. I'm going to go to New Jersey, you know? (laughs) Um, And uh, I had never done a musical. That was my first ever Equity Union musical. Wow. Um, And... I had no, you know, for musical theater auditions, you're supposed to bring in a book and a book of sheet music from the canon of musical theater, things that you have to be able to sing at a drop of a hat with the accompanist to show the, you know, boss man's um, (laughs) what you're capable of. I didn't have a book because I didn't know musical theater, didn't study it. So I just put two songs that I really love to sing and it was a John Legend song and it was a St. Vincent song, yep. Annie Clark, St. Yep. Vincent. That was my book. And, um, yeah. Which songs? We got to get that just for the record. Um, it was um, Stay With You by yep. John Legend and it was Marry Me John by St. Vincent. Okay. Um, they were my favorite songs and ones I knew I could sing. Later on, I think I snuck in some Temptations right. in there, but, you know. <laughs> sure, yeah. And that was before the Temptations musical, right, right. okay? Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a similar thing where we did this musical in New Jersey and um, we recorded a cast album and a few years later it became this cult sensation. Yeah, how did that happen? Because I do remember, like, there it was sort of like— a lot of it wasn't that it was like wicked or something where it was getting zillions of people, but the people who loved it would come back like 20 times. Yeah. Right? I don't know. If, do you remember the Gray album? It was in the Napster days. I don't. But the Gray album was this some DJ did this compilation. He did this mix of Jay Z's Black album and the Beatles' White album. <laughs> and it was this like cult sensation on right. the dark web okay. of uh, street, like Napster music. Yeah. And I feel like Be More Chill when it first was, like was kind of like that. Yeah. It was like those who knew, really knew about this crazy album of this musical that never made it to Broadway, but people, but there's this album. And so basically the fans propelled it back to a Broadway run that was right after SpongeBob. Right. So I was about to leave SpongeBob, I was about to 
leave New York, and then I got another phone call. I always just get these yeah. sudden phone calls right. that are like, do you want to be on Broadway right. again? <laughs> um, and that happened, and, and that was also the same year I shot Maisel simultaneously. Um, it's crazy how these things are overlapping. But here's what I wanted to just quickly read yes. back to you to comment on. This is your quote about Be More Chill. I forget where you said this, but quote, I feel like I have been one of the few who's gotten to be in every medium as an Asian lead. I never thought that I could be on Broadway, period. Then I ended up doing two shows back to back. In the last show that I did, Be More Chill, I played the female lead in the musical and also the female romantic interest. And she was really weird and crazy and funny. I had never seen Asian representation like that before, close quote. So what do you think? Where did that come from? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I never saw myself as the, you know, uh, bell to the beast. <laughs> um, and it's just crazy because I, I do feel like that show, it did bring so many there were so many young people who loved the show, so many queer young people mm -hmm. and so many queer young people of color mm -hmm. that it was this thing again where I would go out on the stage door. I would see all these people who were like, I see you. And I've. they were telling me that they had never seen themselves before. And it sort of highlighted to me how much I have never seen myself before. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it's almost a boring conversation because I, I, I do believe that what I was feeling even in college, the reason why I didn't want to have an agent or didn't see a path for me commercially was because I wanted to make art mm -hmm. and I was scared that a commercial path was going to squash my ability to be more than identity, mm -hmm. right? To be a full artist who was purple for all I freaking mm -hmm. care, you know? Mm -hmm. I felt like that that wasn't possible. And I've been very lucky and, you know, lucky, blah, blah, I work hard. Yeah, you know? sure, yeah sure, 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 sure. You know, yeah, you know, you know, all the, the mixed, uh, the con concoction. Right. Um, I don't know who that is. But anyway. Um. <laughs> but it comes back to then what you're saying about Maisel, which, as you say, I guess pops up in the middle of or towards the end of be more or at some it was the throughout Bill Be More thing, We were in tech and I got a text message from a friend whose partner was a writer for Maisel. Okay. And um they were like, There's this role coming up in Maisel. It has to be you. We know everyone thinks it's supposed to be you. You have to go in for this. I also knew Rachel. Right. I don't oh, think you she, knew Rachel Brosnahan. Rachel Brosnahan. Okay. She hadn't reached out, but you know, there were just a lot of voices that kept being like you know, Cindy Tolan was casting. Right. She cast me in uh, an episode of Kimmy Schmidt. She had mm -hmm. seen my work for a while. Everyone was like, it's you, it's you, it's you. And I was like, I'm in tech. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I live in this theater. Yeah. We're about to start previews. I don't know how I would possibly shoot a TV show right now. And they said, just try. They said they're willing to work around it. And I didn't know about, you know, Amy and Dan, Sherman Palladino, mm -hmm. they love Broadway actors and they are, when they can make it work, they're more than willing because they, they just love, they truly yeah. love actors and love theater actors. Yeah, yeah. So they really made it work. But yeah, so I went in, I remember going in for a screen test and they put me in the bangs. They put me in the whole Before look. we even go there though, <laughs> the reason you had said that you didn't even want to read the script or the size yeah. or whatever was originally sent. Because you assumed what? 
I assumed what we all know that is in your heads that I don't think you're a sinner. I just think, you know, you've been we've all been conditioned to see certain kinds of stereotypes. And I pictured a long nailed, you know, uh, probably like Mrs. Mears, (laughs) honestly, of the early modern Millie um, smoking a long cigarette and had her hair in a bun with chopsticks. Um, that's my brain went there or just someone who wasn't a full human. So it was just like a defense mechanism, even though this show okay, had therapist. one best. No, 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 no. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, so because it's, it's hard. Again, I, I guess it shows that you you walk the walk when you say like you're not going to just be sucked in by the fact that something is commercially successful or whatever. I mean, this show is on Amazon. That's about as big of a platform as you can find. It's. At the time, you're hearing from them already won they swept, like, all, the, all Emmys, the Emmys, every right? single one. Yeah, and you're saying, I don't even want to read this. Not because I mean, it's clear. I understand what you're saying. Your reasons were, and but when I say defense mechanism, it would have been too painful to see that that's what they were asking you for. Yeah, I think I was scared. It was a defense mechanism and an an assumption that was built upon previous history. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's yeah. Because I was one of the first leads or prominent characters of color on that show. And so it wasn't even like pulled out from thin air. It was just like, this is how it's always been. And so I didn't want to see something that would bring more pain because I was already getting to be a female lead ingenue, whether wacky or not, an ingenue on Broadway. And I didn't want to, uh, yeah, it is heartbreaking sometimes when you see those things come in. And I remember even like, at an audition when I was in, when I was really starting to work, mm-hmm. that this casting director, um, I think it was a fur commercial. I don't remember what it was for, but they asked me to put on an accent. And I remember just being like, I am so sorry, but if that's what you're looking for, you're not looking for me. Um, with all due respect, yeah. this project's not for me. Yeah. I walked out the door and I was fuming. I was like, I can't believe someone just asked me that. And I, there was a, a man next to me who is also Asian. And I said he was going to go back and read again. And I said, did they ask you to do an accent? And he said, yes. And I said, why did you do it? And he's like, I don't have a choice. This is what what is available for me as an actor. And I remember being like, don't let anyone tell you, you have to be like something lesser than you are. But, you know, that was still the reality. Um, But yeah, so um, when, you know, luckily Maisel was such a delightful surprise. And I I really do feel like I've been carving this path for myself, both for myself and for other people, because now no one can ever think to themselves, any person of color can't think of them to themselves. I could never be in a period piece in TV. Right, I was right? going to say, because this is just if anyone needs a reminder, if they haven't seen the show yet, this is season three, four, and hopefully five with I you at TBD. But uh, May is Chinese woman associated with the illegal gambling operation beneath Joel's new club becomes his you know, new romantic partner post-Midge. And it's interesting because, you know, contrary to what you were worried about with, like, Dragon Lady and stereotypes, stuff like that that you've said, the model for her was actually supposedly who? Audrey Hepburn. That's quite different. Yes. Then, right? Yeah. Who, unfortunately, was in Breakfast at Tiffany's with for Mickey sure. Rooney. Sure, with whatever. Sure, sure. Not a great, yeah, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> it's not her fault. Um, but that's interesting. And then the fact... Well, so, okay, so um, 
another quote from this was something that you did a guest piece for us, THR, yeah. in June 2021. And this is a quote from it. Quote, I grew up in America trying to actively forget how to speak Mandarin because I was afraid the kids at school would call me a FOB. Was that what's that fresh off the boat? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, my mother told me I could never be an actor because nobody on screen looked like me. I thought I could never play a love interest for so many reasons that it needs to be a whole other think piece. Um, but on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I get to do all three. Close quote. So I take it that once you were there, it ended up being a pretty um, positive Experience. Yeah. I mean, you asked earlier about, you know, sort of my first time on Broadway, if that felt like I made it. And I will say that that year, the year following SpongeBob 20, that was 2019, mm -hmm. I think was the first time in my life that I had really felt not like I made it, mm -hmm. but just admitted to myself that I was actually an actor. I was doing eight shows a week, doing press for that new musical, shooting Maisel on Mondays, on the days off. And when both of those things ended, I I met the Daniels. Yeah. And so that year I really – and, I, you know, I, I really worked myself to the bone that year in a way that I don't think now I could ever do again because it's not ultimately healthy yeah. or whole. But – I felt this huge responsibility because I was being given all these incredible opportunities that not only do most people as actors, no matter what you look like, mm -hmm. don't get, but also people who look like me don't get. And so I was breaking these barriers in one year that felt ultimately pretty small, but also very substantial. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure I, I felt the importance of I have to do a good job because there are so many people who are looking to me as a person of inspiration. And, you know, I want to break more ground for them. I really feel that. Right? Well, even I, I think one of the things I'd read, you you were approached in a coffee shop or something by mm. a woman who had worked on Maisel, too. Yes. And what was what was that about? So this was recently. Um, she had seen everything everywhere as well. Um, but she came up to me in a coffee shop in New York. She was this Asian woman. Um, and she was like, hey, I'm so sorry. I don't want to bother you. But I just want to say. And I thought she was going to talk about everything everywhere. But she <laughs> said, um, "I yeah, I just want to say that I'm an extra. And I... Um, or I, I'm an extra right now and I got to be an extra for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and I feel like I just want to thank you because I feel like the reason I got to be there was because of you and I just immediately was just like oh my god yeah. it was so emotional yeah, because yeah. it's true it's true you know and I I want everyone to believe in themselves I want everyone to fully there are so many artists that we don't even know about, right, who are from all over the world, who are waiting to be seen. Mm -hmm. And I want to eradicate all the very surface layer things that are in the way, race, identity, mm -hmm. all the sort of exterior stuff so that people can just bloom big, you know. And lest anyone think that this is like, you know, whatever, bleeding heart, liberal people who were like, we should have a, you know, let's find a way to make increase the diversity of our cast or whatever. I mean, like it actually totally makes sense that May would be the kind of woman who Joel 
would be into totally. after a midge. They're both, I mean, how would Fiery, yeah. spicy. They're not going to They're not going to take bullshit. it. They're not going to, no. They're doing career paths that yes. women of that time were not really going down. She wants to be a doctor. Totally. Midge, I mean, it all makes sense. Well, and then also you think about, you know, the stereotypes of Asian people being doctors and people being like, oh, my gosh, of course May would want to <laughs> be a doctor. I'm like, this is the 1960s. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And also we need doctors. Like <laughs> if anybody wants to be a doctor, go be a doctor. Right. That's freaking awesome. Yeah, yeah. You know, whatever the stereotypes. Totally. Too bad. You're excellent. I don't know. Yeah. You know, no. you're saving lives. Um, but, yeah, I would say that I think the biggest – Another gift of this time of everything everywhere is um, one thing I've really felt that I hope I take with me forever is that when people see your greatness, it feels so much easier to be great. Mm -hmm. There's pressure that comes with it for sure. I've felt moments of performance anxiety that I've never felt um, because now I have eyeballs mm -hmm. watching. Um but I also feel so much more permission to play and say, this is what I bring. And I bring a lot of play and I like to collaborate. And people are now seeing me as equal in a way that no one was ever mean. No one's ever been mean to me. Um, but I think people just don't trust your, they don't know your body of work. So how can they know? How can they know if they don't know? Well, you and know? I would imagine also like when you've racked up a number of, well-received things, it's probably less scary that, like, if I whiff on something, I'm not gone. Like, I, you now have maybe a little bit, does it hopefully feels more <laughs> I mean, like I don't a, think I feel there yet. No, no, I am, I am, no I'm like, I only want to make good things. I only want to do a good job. Um, well, I hope you, I hope yeah. you just cash in on, like, the next big, whatever, Marvel, Star Wars, whatever. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. anyway, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Because <laughs> we we're talking about everything everywhere, but there's no everything everywhere if there's not Nora from Queens, right? So this, yes. this is basically after that crazy run that you're talking about of, like, three overlapping things. It's like basically a guest starring role in an episode of Aquafina's show, yeah. which you only really wanted to do because Bowen was Bowen in it. was in it pre SNL Bowen yeah, pre SNL so got an Bowen NYU reunion here, and by pure happenstance, this is being directed by. The Daniels. Yeah. Daniel. Who you had n n probably not heard of even at that point, right? Who, who had? Yeah. I had seen Turn Down for What, but I had not known that it was the Daniels who had directed Turn Down for What, the music video. Um, and yeah, I, I just want to do an episode of that show because of because uh, of Bowen. Mm -hmm. And Nora and I also did a show way back called Girl Code. That was my first TV gig. And mm -hmm. that was kind of Nora Aquafina's big break yeah. as well as a as a comedian or a funny person and um I did this episode and I met the Daniels and in it was in the audition room in the callback room where immediately we just clicked and we just couldn't stop laughing but it was also because we were really trying to hone in on a very strange character it's a traditional it's a Chinese character that is uh in China, right when communism is sort of coming to be. But again, it's a comedy, right? right? So she speaks in like really contemporary vernacular. Um, and we were trying to hone in on this character together. And Dan Kwan describes it as they gave me the direction of like, okay, can you do this? And now this, and then wear a hat and then twiddle your little fingers and then speak. And he saw my brain go, tick -a -tick -a -tick -a 
<laughs> and then I did it, and yeah. it was the character. So right right away, we just really understood each other and felt very safe to play together. Um, and I felt, I mean, this also, this episode is stacked. It's Simu Liu, Pri Shang-Chi is in it, Harry Shum Jr., Rakakuni is in it, Jamie Chung, me, Pretty Stephanie Shu. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it was a, a, right, amazing right. Uh, cast. And after we filmed, it was one week, I basically was like, I'm ready to go to LA because there are young artists who I don't even know exist who are making things that are, I just want to make things with them. And I wasn't even talking about the Daniels. I was just imagining all, the whole sea of Daniels that could exist. Right. But this is after 11 years in New York. After 11 years in New York. And having t- started out on what we, what we were talking about, where it's like, I see myself in experimental theater. Now it was kind of opening you up more to the possibility of screen could be fun and challenging too. Yes, totally. And because when I met the Daniels, it was so satisfying. It was kind of a perfect melding of something experimental, but also funny. And they are big hearted people. And I just was like, I, I have shot the biggest show in New York at the time, mm-hmm. been on Broadway twice. There's a whole other avenue. I don't even know what that is. I wasn't thinking film. I was just thinking something yeah. else that I was ready for. So I got on a plane, went to stay with my friend, and within a week of me being in L.A., the Daniels called me, and they're like, we're working on this movie, and we think you'd be really perfect for it. No pressure. And I said, sign me up. And I knew nothing about, nothing it. about it. My friends, who is a producer <laughs> and a cinematographer, they like to joke that when I got the call, I got the email. Apparently, I said to them, "Hey, do do y'all know what um, a two four is?" <laughs> um, I don't think I was that dumb, but but it was something like that. And wow. um, didn't know Michelle Yeoh was attached. Because we have anything. to just remind people, there had not been a movie up to this point. No, I had not done a movie. I did an ultra low, low, low budget film, okay. but I hadn't ever. I had auditioned for films, but movies felt so far away, mm-hmm. which I, I don't think if I was starting off now, I would even know how to advise someone to do a movie because yeah. they're hard to make. And that is so it's so hard to break in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't believe that this is how I broke it. Right. With only the biggest movie in A24 history. A2, yeah. <laughs> A24? Right. A24. Um, um, A24. Well, so was it basically like, from them telling you we're doing, you know, are you interested? Like, was it actually an audition process or was it you're in now? Here's what it's going to be. No, it was a really extensive audition process. Um, they sent me the script. I went in. I went in for callbacks. I think I went in for two callbacks. Um, but I I think I had no I really wanted it. I will admit. Why? Because I knew I could do it because I saw in I understood the script so profoundly in its metaphysics and philosophical bent, but also in this core story of a mother and a daughter um, and an immigrant family. I just knew it and I could see it in my own directorial eye. And because I had worked with the Daniels, I could see it in their directorial eye. Exactly. I trusted them. Did they know about your personal dynamics and history with having a mom who was, they didn't know any of that. They didn't know any of that. They just knew that we had a lot of fun together and could see that we liked to cook together. Um, 
And I think what I loved about it, and, you know, as we kind of continue this big push for this film, mm-hmm. I'm trying to take all of this in as much as I can because, and also, you know, this was 2019 when this came into right. my life. And so we filmed in 2020. It's been a really long time. So much has happened. There's this thing called COVID. I don't even know. <laughs> you know, a lot of life has changed. Right. And I remember reading the script and I wasn't thinking about identity. What I was thinking about was this is something that can hold my whole artistry. This is something that can hold how big I can go, but how small and how intimate and vulnerable I can also be. And it, I, I felt the world of range. Yeah. What a platform for a first film role. And, and just if there's somebody who's listening, who, you know, maybe is listening because they love Maisel or something else, but they haven't seen this yet. It's not just Joy, it's Jobu and I guess you could say a million versions of different characters of them. But you've connect like essentially in some ways these the two Joy and Jobu are total opposites, but in but that you've said that in terms of figuring out how you're gonna approach them there's got to be certain consistencies, right? There were underlying things that were going to be the same. And then I guess just I'm wondering, because once you realize you had the part and you've got to now go and do this, like, is this one where you literally have to map it out? Because we know movies are generally not shot in sequence. Now you're playing characters. It must be hard enough to keep track when it's one character and you're jumping all over the place. But here, you know, it's degrees of angst getting just the motion and keeping track of it. I don't, was, was it something you literally had to chart out? Yeah. I mean, I, I like to say that Joy and Jobu, they are two opposite expressions of the same core. Um, and that was a really important totem to define for us. I just, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of housework while uh, we were on mm-hmm. break and getting cozy. And um, I uncovered my uh, Everything Everywhere binder because I thought it would be oh, a helpful thing yeah. to just reflect on before the new year. And, um, yeah, I have like five pages of a map in the very beginning where it's just scene by scene and I've marked out who's joy, who's Jobu, when they start to, you know, collapse and collide and unravel into the parking lot scene. Um, so that map was, you know, as someone who comes from theater is a very important, was important for me dramaturgically to make sure that I am protecting the story so much so that I can throw it all away once I get onto set. Because the beauty of this film was getting to experiment, even though we shot it in 38 days and it was truly, I don't now as I work on larger projects, I'm like, wait, how did we do that? That's crazy. But, you know, being a, I never felt like we didn't get to play. And I felt like we had so much room to really try things, do different takes. Um, and, um, yeah, keeping the foundation of the map in your core so that when you show up, you can surrender to however things want to adapt without losing the center. Is that really jarring though? Because when you're in theater, obviously you're going start to finish every night, you know, where you're, you know, like it's so different. I don't know. TV as well is that closer to film where you just could be the end first and then the but like to to now be doing what you had to do for this was that a, a 
big adjustment? I found it to be really, maybe because of my comedy background mixed with dramaturgy, I found it to be really liberating and so fun because I, the way I describe my experience of filmmaking or making movies is that you're, it's like you're collecting little secrets all along the way into your little fanny pack. You're you're remembering, oh, that day we shot that scene and we discovered X. And so now two weeks later, I can bring out that little texture or that vocabulary into this story that we're creating together. It really feels like sculpting in a way that, especially with everything everywhere, my character, you, I had to be so alive the whole time because I could also... You know, we created this villain that because she can be everywhere and she is all-knowing and she's supposed to be above um, Evelyn, that at any moment she could be in the middle of a conversation with you and have jumped to five different possibilities. So the way I played with that was this hyper-awareness. So I was collecting clues the whole time of what I could bring back later. You know, I felt like I was right in the river with everybody. Um, so it was so fun. And the biggest, I think, the texture, the most exciting texture of a character we created was we created for shorthand, we created this character Joybu, which was a combination of Joy and Jobu. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we would do a scene that maybe if you read the script, you're like, oh, that's clearly a Jobu scene. We would do it again as Joybu just to, to shade s- it. To shade it. Yeah. And that became such an important invisible character that was, I think, the bedrock of how to keep an audience curious of, like, who this person, who this character is. Why is she – she's a villain, but I know she's the daughter. Like, what's going on? You know, because you have to make sure that they follow you all the way so you can take them to the parking lot. Right. Which is the first just simple scene after two hours. And like your character, everybody who watches it is – Ugly crying. <laughs> it's like that is I, I go into, you know, if I saw a screening of it or something after the first time, I want to just see how people react <laughs> at the end to that one. Um, but I guess you've got like a, a not a huge production here that you guys were working on. So it's a relatively intimate group. And we'll note Michelle Yeoh, who is people are reacting in amazing ways to her performance, of course. But there's also uh, Kihei Kwan, who first time in 20 years, James Hong, who you've noted would goes back to when it was when Mickey Rooney's portrayal probably seemed progressive. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, and then you but what's what's so on that level, just being surrounded by a cast of of principally uh, actors of Asian descent. I wonder what how that felt because that's obviously an unusual thus far yeah. um, thing for anyone in in a American production. Um, but also, how do we ex- how do we explain the fact that these two guys? It's, you've got two quite young men who somehow understood very deeply the relationship between a middle aged Asian woman and her you know, young adult daughter, like, how did they get this? Daniel Kwan is, is of Asian descent. Daniel Scheinert is not. <laughs> yeah. Um, just if anyone needs to keep track of their Daniels. <laughs> but like, that is one of the things when you stop and think like, this is a mother-daughter classic yeah. written by two and directed by two 
Dudes. Dudes. Yeah. Well, Dan and Daniel are really incredible. And Dan, Dan, I think, had the seed of this idea that was based off of his Dan Kwan. Sorry, they're both named Daniel. <laughs> Dan Kwan. I call Dan Dan Kwan. Right. Anyway, um, Dan Kwan had the seed of idea, this idea with his experience with his mother. And what I like to say and what the Daniels like to say is they are surrounded by very strong, opinionated, powerful women, myself being one of them, <laughs> their parents, their partners. Um, so I think there's something in them. They are actually quite tender and yin, if you want to speak about it in that, those terms. And I think they really notice and hear the women around them. Um, so I think it was kind of in their bedrock. And there was a moment where my character, Joy Jobu, could have been a son, but um, it just didn't end up going that way. And I think inherently with me having being a daughter and having that experience, I didn't know how many people had specific mother-daughter experiences, and I just did what I know. Right. And it's been really astounding to hear so many people reflect and confess their trauma. Yes. <laughs> um, now you have to listen to it for the rest of your life. Yeah, everybody else's, yeah. everybody totally. else's stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but one thing I do want to say, you know, just bringing in Michelle and talking about Key and then, of course, James Hong, you know, I do think I want people to know, I want to just trans, in my, in my dream world, we're not talking about diversity five to 10 years from now because we're making so many different kinds of stories that it is just natural for us to be able to see what the world looks like on screen. But I do, I've been reflecting on this a lot because, you know, let's say, okay, elephant in the room is it's award season yeah. in 95 years there's only been, for Best Leading Actress, there's been one woman of color who's won, and that was Halle Berry. Right. I, I, this was just presented yeah, to me yeah. recently. All of that is still present in this in the room. Mm -hmm. James Hong is still alive, mm -hmm. and he started acting when people literally on set would just call him China Man. Like, <sighs> they wouldn't call him James. They wouldn't say his name. They would just call him China Man and tell him to be on his mark. He left acting for 20 years. And I just want to name that because I think I also sometimes I'm like, I want to talk about the craft. I want to talk about art. I want to talk about how far we've come. I want to look forward. But I also still feel that every card that's been stacked against my family in this movie, we've all We've all seen it. Mm -hmm. And yes, I'm the youngest of the bunch, but like, again, I started over 10 years ago yeah. and I didn't want to go into a commercial path because of the same cards that were stacked against them. So it feels like important to not just talk about diversity as a, a means of what are what we're aiming towards, but also to kind of acknowledge that this very recent history has been why we haven't seen these faces right. and these stories. Um, yeah, I just felt like I wanted to name oh, absolutely, that. You know? Absolutely, absolutely. And I guess it kind of brings me to the final two questions. One of them is this movie and the kind of explosion of the movie and of your career, right, mm -hmm. are happening at the exact same moment that we are seeing this in America, explosion of anti-Asian hate, largely, I guess, in the aftermath of the pandemic, but there were of COVID outbreak, but it was there before and it's just wasn't 
discouraged by our former president, and it's just taken on a crazy life of its own. I, I read again in that THR guest column where you've said you yourself have experienced it. It's yeah. it's very you know crazy prevalent and hard to. I mean, there's a variation of this that's also happening now with anti-Semitism. So I can totally. only sort of you know r- relate. But I just wonder for you the the as the second to last question, just this, it must feel weirdly like emotionally conflicting that you're have, and this movie are, are having this great moment at the same time that overall, it's not a particularly great moment for Asians in America. Yeah. It's confusing. Um, I, I think what I'm most proud of with our movie is that it is so singular in so many ways that I do feel like it's this piece of art that has that centers around a very specific group of people but has transcended identity politics. People are not talking about just the fact that it's a Chinese family. They're like, wait, the costumes and yeah. multiverses and, oh, my gosh, my family, people from every background – has had an experience with it and it's not just centered around race. And that's one of the things I'm most proud of with our film. And it teaches me that art has both the responsibility and the power to move our compassion needle forward. Um, I think the biggest way that sometimes this conflict of being a person of color in this country, in this industry, how it manifests is fear or like, I don't want, you know, being an actor, being a filmmaker is hard enough, right? You're already, to get a movie made, any movie made, even if it flops, is a complete miracle. And now that I've been through it, I'm like, wow, no matter, even if I hated it, I just want to say, wow, you did that. You know, like, good job. (laughs) I know it was hard. (laughs) I know you cried at least three times, you know. Um, But I think I feel this really what what happened to key it's taken michelle her whole career to be number 1 on the call sheet she's incredible mm-hmm. i mean i i don't want that to happen again mm-hmm. and i don't want it to happen to me and i don't want it to be this like little moment of wow remember that time we all did that thing and then back to being clerk number two. I mean, that's not happening objectively, but I think that's how it manifests is that there's something, and this is a very immigrant mindset, I would say that, you know, it's like always plan for the worst case scenario. Um, and I, that's how it manifests in me is like feeling, obviously I have greater worries about the, the state of the country and politics, you know, internationally, but in my kind of corner of the universe, I just feel that I, it always feels, it's like trepidatious where it always feels that, you know, it could just happen again, or maybe that this has going, is going to bust open beautiful doors for me, but what's on the other side is going to be less satisfying than this one really special thing that got to hold all of us in this moment. That's only in the moments where I let myself go there because I have to believe not only for myself, but for all those who are waiting in the wings who look all different kinds of ways. I'm talking about people who are also more prominently seen. 
I'm actually just talking about the art I want to see in the world, yeah. right? Like I, I have to believe that there is going to be more room, more opportunity for things that excite us and inspire us and keep us together. That's my fear when I think about movie theaters not being as popular anymore. I'm like, we have to, we have to share stories together yeah. or else we're going to lose each other. So that's kind of my, I, I try to let that be my beacon and not let the, you know, sad, ugly yeah, thoughts yeah. creep in because there's enough sad, yeah, ugly. Totally. <laughs> well, the very last question, just to bring it full circle to where we started. Full bagel. Full bagel, exactly. <laughs> and by the way, actually, before I ask the question, I just want to note to your point about people of all sorts responding to um, the movie and for different reasons in different ways. And it's not at all purely because of the the unusual thus far diversity of the of the cast i teach a class at chapman university mm. and there's a there were this semester it's a large class like 70 kids i think were in the class uh -huh. and their final assignment was to pick a 2022 you know awards movie that they were essentially invested in enough to want to it, it's it's all deals with sort of like the oscar campaign mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Infrastructure, but their assignment was all right. You pick one that you feel invested in, and tell me how you would conduct it and why. And overwhelmingly, not even close, the most selected movie was Everything Everywhere. And it's been mm -hmm. interesting in reading because I've been spending part of the break grading these papers mm -hmm. and reading them all, just all the different reasons why mm -hmm. it resonated with people and. It is very interesting. I'm sure you get the equivalent of that every five minutes out on the <laughs> street and everybody wants to share their, their um, you know, thoughts with you. But anyway, the last question that does bring it back to the beginning is presumably your, your mother has seen this movie. What was that experience like? And did you guys have, and I'm talking real life mother, uh, what was her response mm. and your response to her response? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, she came to the L.A. premiere and, you know, my mom is not dissimilar to Evelyn in many ways. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm not going to roast her on this podcast, <laughs> but um, yeah, she's not dissimilar. She was very hard on me. And but when she saw the movie and even when she saw me on Broadway, I think she was always like, what? Um, but um she came to the LA premiere and she watched the movie and after she was had tears in her eyes and she pointed to the screen and she said, that's me. And I really was reflecting on that because she didn't say, that's you. She said, that's me. And it was when I realized that it was the first time my, my mother had ever seen herself mm. on screen. She was talking about Evelyn and the experience of Evelyn. And that was very beautiful, very humbling, overwhelming also to kind of really feel intergenerationally this gap of people who haven't felt seen and are feeling seen by this film. Um, and I think that it, I can feel that it really has made her more tender towards me, more compassionate and more kind. Um, and that's been um, really 
interesting when you put something out into the world that's also there by affecting and shifting your own personal life. That's really wild. The boomerang, yeah. yeah. The boomerang, it's been, yeah, it's, it's bagel, you know. <laughs> it's been full bagel, well, I gotta say. And so that was the true reason why you guys made this in the beginning, right? You, intend, <laughs> you intended that all along. You knew it was going to have this effect and it came. Yeah, no, yeah, just, yeah, it's, yeah it's, totally. It's, you could never have. You could never know. No. You could never know. And that's been, I, I really, you know, jokes aside about yeah. the bagel and circles yeah, yeah, yeah. and, you know, boomerang, this project and the release of it and the success of it has been just as healing as it has been for other people, as it has been for me. Being re-inspired and knowing that this is still possible for us to make things and for it to impact people has been so encouraging as an artist to just say, okay, let's keep going. Like there's still room to make and there are still people who want to hear and want to receive. So that's the audience that, you know, the audience isn't the box office. The audience is like the people who are in need and support of trying to navigate a very complicated, confusing time that we have no answers to. Well, it's I all I know is that when I sat down to see the movie, it was, I think, an advanced screening in L.A. And all I knew was Michelle Yeoh's in this movie. Yeah. And I heard it's a little bit of a wacky movie. <laughs> and then you showed up and I'm staring for like a few minutes trying to figure out, like, where do I know this actress from and then I remember I love Maisel and I yeah. put it together and it's like there are not too many people out there who when you see them on screen or on stage or whatever you know your people are actually immediately you know happy and excited to see that person mm -hmm. that means you've done something right and you're already just at again this is your first movie so I hope that whatever anyone else says for or against it. I, hopefully you're, and, and I know it's like the whirlwind of the season, but like try to mm. take it in that it's, um, you know, you've, it's a great accomplishment. Thank you. Yeah. Thank no, you. Thanks for yeah. coming in. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Yeah. Thanks for all your deep diving. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.